Here's a riddle that you might find in a detective story. Which character is ubiquitous, yet invisible? Vital, yet overlooked? At the country house party, he's never out of sight, yet nobody ever really sees him. The answer, of course, is the butler. Always in the background, anticipating the guests' every need before they can voice it commanding a platoon of servants below stairs to do the master's bidding. He's the true mastermind behind the highly choreographed social events that are regularly depicted in crime fiction from the 1920s and 30s. But his status is not secure. When a crime is committed and a scapegoat outside the privileged family circle is needed, what could be more convenient than to point the finger at the butler? All of the class boundaries and snobberies of British society are there in the detective fiction from this time too, for better and worse. And pushing the blame onto the servants quickly became a cliché of the genre, avoided and toyed with by generations of writers. Regardless, I feel I have to investigate further. Did the butler really do it? Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This episode marks the start of what I'm calling the She Done It Pledge Drive. As some listeners may know, alongside the show, I run the She Done It Book Club, a membership scheme where all the subscriptions go towards supporting the show. It works a lot like Patreon if you've ever used that to make regular contributions to an artist or work that you like. Members get access to a special bonus feed with extra content the Super Secret Club Forum, and of course the monthly book club where we read a different classic detective novel every month. Making every episode of this show takes many, many hours of research, writing, recording, editing and mixing, and I have hosting costs and so on to pay too. So every single member's contribution helps to make it better and easier to make. Put simply, without them, I would not still be doing this. She Done It has come a long way since it launched at the end of October 2018 two years and 50 episodes ago. Thanks to all the wonderful members who've signed up so far, the podcast is now almost at a tipping point where I can afford to make it a core part of my actual job, rather than something I do in my non-existent spare time and in the middle of the night. I have so many ideas for new things I want to do. I want to be able to bring out episodes more often. I want to make mini audiobooks for you. I want to expand into covering TV and film adaptations of detective fiction, as well as the books. And that's where the pledge drive comes in. If I can add 100 new members to the She Done It book club by the end of 2020, I'll be able to forge ahead with these plans to grow and deepen what the podcast offers. So if you'd like to be part of that and feel able to offer some support, please visit shedoneitshow.com slash pledge drive to find out about all the ways you can help take the show to the next level. There are new rewards on offer, new tiers at which you can join the club, a special offer for giving the gift of a membership to a friend, and much more. There's also new merchandise coming very soon, as well as some exciting bonus content on this feed to give you a taste of what would be on offer if we hit the target by the end of December. So head over to shedoneitshow.com slash pledge drive to make your contribution. I'm so grateful for your help, whether that's taking part or sharing this, and really excited to see what we can do next. Now, let's get into today's episode. Oh wait, before I do, 
this is a rare occasion when I'm going to give a proper spoiler warning from the very start. I usually do my best to avoid revealing the solutions of the books I talk about, but this is a subject where it's just not possible to talk about it and also keep all the endings a secret. After all, when covering whether the butler did it, I really have to be able to say whether he did or not. There's a full list of all the books mentioned in the description of this episode, so please do check it and come back later if there are any titles there for which you don't want to hear any major plot details. Consider yourself warned. Like a lot of cliches, the actual origins of the butler did it trope in mystery writing are tangled and subjective. To understand where it came from, we need to go back a little before the true golden age of detective fiction between the two world wars and look at the work of Mary Roberts Reinhardt, an incredibly prolific American writer who began publishing mystery stories with The Circular Staircase in 1907. By the time Dorothy L. Sayers, Anthony Barclay and the rest were forming the Detection Club in London, Reinhardt was already a household name, with her books selling thousands of copies and many of her stories adapted into silent films. Her 1930 novel, The Door, is often considered to be one of the worst she ever wrote, but I'm afraid it is there that our butler hunt takes us. A few external factors contributed in the creation of this overly long, plodding tale. Reinhardt was just recovering from a bout of illness when her two sons launched a new publishing house, Farrer and Reinhardt, and were relying on their mother to provide them with an early commercial success, which was all the more important for their business because of the economic downturn brought about by the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. Mary Roberts Reinhardt, therefore, bashed out the door very quickly while still convalescing in hospital, and it doesn't have any of her usual careful plotting or interesting characters. If you're interested in trying out her work, this isn't where I'd recommend that you start. However, it is worthy of our attention today because The Door is one of the rare, straightforward examples of a plot in which the butler does really turn out to be the murderer. In this book, the butler literally did do it. It doesn't include the precise phrase, the butler did it, which is sometimes also attributed to Reinhardt, but there is no doubt that she did write a novel in which the butler, well, you get the picture. The fact that it's a slapdash, mostly uninteresting novel also played a substantial role in cementing the idea that this was a lazy solution and one that mystery writers aspiring to originality should avoid. That all seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? Except it just isn't accurate to say that Mary Roberts Reinhardt is entirely to blame for the idea of The Butler Did It. I draw your attention to number 11 of the American mystery writer S.S. Van Dyne's 20 Rules for Writing Detective Stories, published in 1928. A servant must not be chosen by the author as the culprit. This is begging a noble question. It is a too easy solution. The culprit must be a decidedly worthwhile person, one that wouldn't ordinarily come under suspicion. Admittedly, he says servant, not butler, but the idea is very similar. Van Dyne, which was the pseudonym of art critic Willard Huntington Wright, by the way, was essentially saying that picking a butler or any other kind of servant as the murderer was breaking the rules by which any, quote, respectable and self-respecting concocter of literary mysteries should abide. And he said that a full two years before Mary Roberts Reinhardt published The Door. Butlers, then, 
were already considered far too obvious to be the culprits in clever, original whodunits. But we don't have to look too far to find the stories that might have inspired Van Dyne to include this prohibition in his list. Indeed, even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself had dabbled in this trope back in 1893, with the Sherlock Holmes story The Adventure of the Musgrave Ritual. That features a dastardly butler by the name of Richard Branton, who hatches a plot to steal a valuable family treasure. There were more recent examples when Van Dyne was writing too, such as the 1921 short story The Strange Case of Mr Chaloner, a locked room mystery in which Jenkins's detective Malcolm Sage eventually works out how an apparently respectable butler had worked the trick in order to kill his master. Jenkins has another butlerish connection that we shouldn't ignore too. As well as being a writer, he was a publisher and entrepreneur, and in 1912 founded his own publishing company called Herbert Jenkins Limited. In 1918, he began publishing the works of P.G. Woodhouse, the creator of arguably the most famous butler of them all, Jeeves. Although Jenkins himself died in 1923, his company carried on working with Woodhouse for decades, and even published the 1958 novel Something Fishy, which was brought out in the United States under the alternative title of The Butler Did It. Mary Roberts Reinhardt can't be held entirely responsible for originating The Butler Did It Then. Although there can be no doubt that her large readership and the poor quality of the novel in question helped to cement the idea of this trope as an easy get-out for a lazy plotter of mystery stories. To better understand how it became such a staple cliché of detective fiction, it's worth thinking about pop culture's long-running and ongoing obsession with depicting the wealthy and privileged, because that explains some of the power dynamics we find between masters and servants in crime fiction. Historically, so much of literature has been about the middle and upper classes, both because those were the social backgrounds of the people who could afford to be writers, and because those lives were just deemed more worthy of depiction. And although that has changed substantially in the past century or more, I still don't think we're free of this cultural obsession with the lives of the very wealthy. Look at Downton Abbey or The Crown, or the constant flow of period dramas on our screens. This fascination is not one that we can talk about in the past tense. And with these portrayals of wealthy people come depictions of their servants. It's yin and yang, upstairs and downstairs, gentlemen and valet. You can't have one without the other, it would seem. Murder mysteries, especially those published by British writers in the first half of the 20th century, are obsessed with order. It's one of the reasons why we like them so much, and why it has been argued that they are a fundamentally conservative form. The detective brings order to chaos, and restores the status quo by solving the crime. The prevailing social order and class distinctions bleed into these books, because that's the system in which they were written and read. While some writers did poke fun at these conventions, as I'll explain a bit later, The servants in Golden Age detective novels are as subservient and powerless as their real-life counterparts. The British census of 1891 records that 1.3 million women and girls were working as domestic servants then, and in 1900, domestic labour was the country's biggest single employment. There were fine distinctions below stairs just as there were above them. The butler, of course, is the omniscient leader of the servants' hall, And then there's a hierarchy beneath him, right down to the lowliest scullery maid. Everyone knew their place, 
And that's the kind of structure in which classic detective fiction thrives. The First World War upended much of this. Hundreds of thousands of domestic servants left their positions in order to serve in the forces or to work in factories. And when the war was over, they didn't want to go back to a life of poorly paid drudgery and powerlessness in private service. The servant problem, the shorthand name for the difficulty getting and keeping servants in a society where people had more options for work, is a constant background anxiety in golden age detective fiction. I think it's part of why we see employers so suspicious of their servants in some stories. They could no longer count on the absolute loyalty engendered by a total lack of life chances that were enjoyed by generations past. There's plenty of academic research today that shows that one sign that a society is becoming more equal is the decline in the number of domestic workers, as more options for employment and education and social welfare programmes offer people from poorer backgrounds alternative ways of life. Post-1918, there was a reasonable chance that your butler would be better read than you and have a better war record. No wonder it was so easily assumed that they would take revenge upon their masters. The prominent role played by servants in Golden Age detective fiction can be explained in part just by the period in which these books were written. But it also has a lot to do with the mechanics of the whodunit itself. Colin Watson ably makes this point in his 1971 work of criticism, Snobbery with Violence. Detective writers need the servants, because they function as boundaries and checks on the plot. Just as country houses or remote islands make for great whodunit settings, because they physically isolate the circle of suspects, so do competent servants aid the mystery writer because they are the eyes and ears of a household. Maids, footmen, cooks, charwomen and butlers can all be called upon to reliably bear witness to when a body was discovered, or whether a room has been accessed, or if a suspect's habits have changed suspiciously. The domestic tasks that they perform are so beneath a novel's well-to-do protagonists things like clearing out a grate or cooking a meal, that they can be suddenly elevated to matters of great significance by a murder plot, and only the servants can speak on them with expertise. There are countless stories that use servants as observers or obstacles, but I want to just highlight two that I think are very typical of the period and the technique. Firstly, Naya Marsh's Death and the Dancing Footman from the early 1940s sees the footman of the title provide the impossibility that Detective Roderick Allen must overcome to solve this crime in a remote country house. The footman confesses to doing a surreptitious and rebellious dance to a song on the wireless in the hall outside the room where the murder takes place, thereby implacably cutting off the route to the murder victim. It's the servant-as-obstacle idea taken to ridiculously brilliant extreme. He's literally standing outside the room doing the hands-knees-and-bumps-a-daisy dance, while someone is being killed. The second book I want to draw your attention to is The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Agatha Christie's debut novel from 1920. It's also a country house mystery, and sees Hercule Poirot, the recently arrived Belgian refugee, solve a gruesome poisoning. One of the crucial breaks in the case comes from the parlourmaid Dorcas, who Christie describes as being the very model and picture of a good old-fashioned servant. By fixing the exact time of a quarrel, Dorcas provides Poirot with key intelligence about what has really been going on in the house, 
never mind what stories its habitants spin for him. Dorcas is a crucial ally to the detective. She can search the house without arousing suspicion, and she can observe the family without making them feel like they're under constant surveillance. But even though Poirot is very respectful when he speaks to her, even he doesn't acknowledge how much of his successful resolution of the case he owes to her efforts. She is just a servant after all, and his attitude is inflected with a kind of patronising paternalism. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. A domestic servant in 1920 occupied a peculiar position. They were simultaneously trusted with immense responsibility and lots of sensitive information, such as a butler having control of a household budget and a priceless collection of wine, or a lady's maid helping to undress her mistress every day and knowing all of her most intimate fears and secrets. But at the same time, the servant was also completely powerless. If they were dismissed in questionable circumstances without a reference, their career was over, and there would be very little inquiry into whether they actually deserved this fate or not. In all manner of short stories and novels, we see servants who have been accused of theft or suspected of murder demand that they and their possessions be searched immediately, so that their innocence can be proven straight away, and there will be no lingering doubt about their reputation. Another interesting dynamic to pay attention to is how authority figures treat butlers and other servants. Hercule Poirot tends to be sympathetic and polite to servants who are afraid that they will be unfairly dismissed once a murder has been committed in the household. But many of the police characters across Golden Age detective fiction are much more likely to jump to the conclusion that the butler or housemaid or chauffeur must have done it. To give some credence to that point of view, 
There are examples of real-life cases where the butler or another servant was the culprit. It was his valet that murdered Lord William Russell in 1840, and there are a number of examples of female thieves in disguise getting jobs as ladies' maids and housekeepers in order to rob their employers. Of course, we rarely get to hear the servant side of the story today, but it is possible to see why the police in crime fiction are always so keen to jump to this conclusion. In the work of Dorothy L. Sayers, for example, one of the ways that the reader can tell which police detectives are good at their jobs and which aren't is by looking at how they treat their servants. In 1923's Whose Body, Inspector Sugg is very unpleasant to a maid called Gladys, whereas the far nicer and more talented Inspector Parker does his very best to be patient and kind to domestic workers. I think part of the reason why the butler did it became a cliche so quickly is because it's just such an obvious example of punching down unnecessarily. In a world where a butler might get summarily dismissed over a minor and arbitrary disagreement, it's just too plausible that they might also become the scapegoat for a murder, for that to be a fun part of fiction. The near-total agreement that having the butler commit the murder is way too obvious and easy provided mystery writers with the opportunity to subvert and twist this trope in interesting ways. Since readers would assume that the butler didn't do it, because that would just be too gauche, these expectations could be toyed with to complicate and improve the plot. Agatha Christie's three-act tragedy from 1934 contains an excellent example of this, because the murderer is a posh actor who almost gets away with his crimes because he successfully impersonates a butler. Christie plays with the idea of the butler as a double bluff or red herring in her 1930 play Black Coffee and the 1926 novel The Murder of Roger Ackroyd too. In the latter, the butler John Parker is a dodgy character with blackmail in his past, but is that enough upon which to suspect him of murder too? That's the possibility that she dangles in front of the reader. Georgette Heyer's second detective novel, Why Shoot a Butler, from 1933, is also a playful take upon this trope, because the butler is not a suspect, but one of the victims. The question of the title also alludes to the so-called servant problem, because the butler in this story is a loyal family retainer of many years standing, and surely only the most hard-hearted murderer would deprive an estate of such a resource. Although he isn't officially a butler, I think Peter Whimsey's manservant Bunter is an excellent example of a writer taking the stereotypes about servants and turning them upside down. Sayers writes Bunter often with seemingly more love and attention than she gives to her hero. There is nothing he cannot do and no situation he cannot rise to, from photography to cookery to espionage to hand-to-hand combat. Probably one of my favourite scenes in fiction full stop is the section of her 1937 novel Busman's Honeymoon, in which Bunter overcomes the domestic difficulties of moving his newly married gentleman into a rural farmhouse with no heating or hot water, with total aplomb. Unlike in the time of Sherlock Holmes, it's no longer the detective himself who has that seemingly divine omniscience and ability. It's his servant. Critics have sometimes alleged that Sayers was in love with Lord Peter Whimsey but I think it's much more plausible that she harboured a secret passion for Bunter, and I wouldn't blame her. She was famously plagued by domestic disasters, 
sometimes claiming household disruption as the excuse for delivering a manuscript late, why wouldn't she create the ideal factotum in her fiction, who could make all of those problems go away? As British society was altered by the two world wars, so did the detective fiction change too. Through the 1940s and 50s, it became far more common for aristocratic characters to complain about a lack of funds to pay servants, rather than to inhabit a fully staffed country house. And some less well-off characters, like Miss Marple, make do by training up young and inexperienced maids and then sending them out to find better paid positions with the benefit of her wisdom. Through servant characters, we also sometimes see major world events intrude upon the sheltered world of the murder mystery. I always think of Mitzi, the Jewish refugee housekeeper in Agatha Christie's 1950 novel A Murder is Announced, who is entirely reasonably terrified that the police who have come to investigate the murder are also going to take her away because of who she is. Crying the butler did it is a fun, light-hearted way of poking fun at one of the more hoary tropes of classic detective fiction. But if you dig a little under the surface, you find all the class prejudice, snobbery and social history lurking within that one simple statement. Once I started thinking about the lack of freedom that many domestic servants endured in the early 20th century for the sake of a regular wage, I began to wonder why we don't see more plots in which the butlers take matters into their own hands. And after all, who would suspect them if they did? This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.